Welcome back to another episode of A Gift from Adversity. My name is Julie Love. I'm your host. Thank you for tuning in. Today we're recording episode 116. Before I introduce our guest, I want to introduce my book, which is the same title as this podcast. It's called A Gift from Adversity. And this is available on Amazon if you type A Gift from Adversity by Jury. J-U-R-I, love. The subtitle of this book is Overcoming Sexual Abuse, Domestic Violence, Bullying, and Homelessness. After I wrote this book and published in 2020, I got a lot of messages from all over the world that people had shared similar adversity and stories. And I felt compelled to hold a space for those who had experienced adversities. But not only that, to share the tools that people use to overcome and then a gift that came from it. And I'm extremely grateful to have had so many guests from all over the world coming to this podcast, sharing the story. So today we have Grace Peterson. Hi, Grace. Thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. I'm so happy to be here. Wonderful. So Grace, let's start with introduction of yourself and then where you're coming in, your name, and also if you have anything that you want to promote, social media. Yeah. Well, as mentioned, uh, I'm Grace Peterson. I am coming to you from uh, New York. I I uh, work as a teacher and I have uh, social media on Instagram and Facebook. So both my Facebook and Instagram accounts are just Grace Peterson and then RBM. And um, I also am promoting my book, which is Behind My Smile, A Rainbow Baby Story. It deals with pregnancy loss, pregnancy after loss, and the traumatic hospitalization of my newborn son. So it covers quite a few hot topics, and um, it is also available on Amazon in uh, ebook and print. Thank you very much for the introduction. So let's dive into our first question, which is the adversity. So can you tell our audience, what was your adversity? Well, um, I'd have to say I have two very large adversities, one of which was just lots and lots of trauma in my life. Um, I have a learning disability. I am dyslexic. I very much struggled in school and um, learning how to how to read was actually surprisingly very, very difficult for me. Um, and along with that, I also had um, other traumas. I was psychologically tortured by a babysitter when I was a child. Um, that, of course, left lasting scars. And I also um, was in a very abusive relationship, uh, marriage, actually, um, where my ex-husband was very manipulative. He would gaslight me. He was very narcissistic. So it kind of came at me from all different directions. And so that's one part of my adversity. 
And then the other part is all of that playing an impact on pregnancy loss and then my journey of pregnancy after loss, having my son in those situations. Um, my ex had actually forced me into an abortion because he didn't think it was a good time, a good option. Um, and it was, it was just heartbreaking and very, it just hit me down to the core because I wanted to be strong and I wanted to stand up and say, no, I'm not, I'm not getting an abortion. This is, this is a child. This is not like, you know, lunch plans. This is a child. And I want to say I, I fought and, and stood up for that child, but unfortunately I was far too heavily abused by him emotionally. And I, I did go through with the abortion. Um, and then when I became pregnant years later with my current husband, um, I was terrified. <laughs> I was like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. I had all the memories of my ex. I was afraid that even though he said he wanted children, I was afraid that that was going to be taken off the table as it was with my ex. Um, unfortunately, we ran into uh, genetic issues with our, our daughter and she had a, um, a genetic issue called trisomy 18. So she was not going to survive. And we were given the option of letting nature run its course or um, ending the pregnancy. And for the sake of everybody involved, we didn't want anyone to suffer. So we, we chose to end the pregnancy. Um, shortly after that, I became pregnant with my son and I was so clueless on how to deal with any of that because I'm very deep in the, in the throes of grief and trying to deal with the fact that I just lost a child and now I'm pregnant with another one. And it was such a conflict of emotions, um, all the time. I never relaxed or slept the entire time that I was pregnant. And what happened with the son, your son? You mentioned about hospitalizations and stuff. Yes. Um, so he had the flu when he was only six weeks old. And but he had a host of other issues as well. He was in respiratory distress. He had the flu and his heart rate was spiking up to like 300. Uh, he had an unknown, undiagnosed heart condition, and all three of those things were playing on each other and exacerbating the other issues. So he got medevaced by helicopter from one hospital to another. Um, yes. <laughs> and I went with him in the helicopter, scariest ride of my life. Um all throughout his hospitalization and my, and my pregnancy with him, there was this constant, constant fear of losing him. You know, when I was pregnant, I was like, okay, well, we, we hit 15 weeks, we hit 20 weeks, we hit 25 weeks. So maybe, maybe we'll make it, maybe we'll make it. And 
I had a, a very grueling labor. I had a C-section under general anesthesia. So, I mean, all of this. And finally, I get my baby into the world and I can breathe. But then I couldn't <laughs> because, as I mentioned, you know, he, um, he was very, very ill and, and um, did almost, almost pass from the flu. So he got choppered in from one hospital to another. He spent 10 days in the PICU. Um, at liftoff in the helicopter, his heart rate hit 300 and they had to use a, um, a medication called adenosine to basically stop his heart so that it would reprogram itself onto a normal rhythm. And I was, I, and I was told they're like, oh, it's going to be a 20 minute flight to, from one hospital to another. And I mean, we're, we're still like wobbling up to get level in the helicopter. And I happened to look down at the monitor and I see the numbers just going up and up and up and up and up. And I was, I was terrified. I, I, what do I, the only thing I could do was to sit there militantly, rigidly, and, and just not get in their way. I couldn't see my son. I couldn't touch him. I couldn't sing to him. Nothing. The only thing I could do was sit there. And I felt so hopeless and powerless. And I, I had no idea what was going to happen at the end of that flight. Was I coming? Was Were, were we going to arrive at the hospital with a living child or one that was dead upon arrival? And I, I just, I didn't even know what to do. I didn't know. I forgot how to breathe when the, when that helicopter was, was lifting off. And what happened after? So um, it was very tense when we landed and um, the staff, you know, he went, um, as soon as we, thankfully the rest of the helicopter ride, he was fine. Um, but I, I think I held my breath all 20 minutes of that ride. Um, when we landed, he was fine, but then they went to take him out of the helicopter to transport him into the ER. And he went right back into a high episode of tachycardia again. So he's up in the 280s, 290s. And I remember very clearly one of the paramedics looking at me and said, Mom, this is the right place for this to be happening. And I think to myself, no, no, there is not a right place for his heart rate to hit 300 because it shouldn't be hitting 300. It should just, should be normal. It should not do these things. Um, and again, all I could do was stand there and watch and wait for them to give me the signal that it was okay to come over to the stretcher and walk into the hospital with them. And how old is your son now? He is three and a half. He will be four in December and he is a handful of a child. He is always into everything <laughs> in the best way. So the, the spoiler alert is he did survive. He did recover. But man, was it it tough. It was very, very uncertain. Um, we found out that night into the next morning, excuse me, that he had, um, as I mentioned, a heart condition. It was called SVT, which is superventricular tachycardia. 
And the very short version of that is he has an like an angry spot in his heart that will randomly cause him to go into high levels of tachycardia. So just as you and I are sitting here having this conversation, his heart could just be like, oh, I'm going to I'm going to fly up to 300 now. So it'll do it without provocation. But as I mentioned, because he was sick with the flu and he was in respiratory distress, all three of those things were just playing on each other and making everything worse. And has he had more episodes after that? Well, he spent 10 days in the PICU um, and he went through three different medications and um, he had breakthrough episodes probably about the first five days um, in the PICU. Uh, so it was a matter of getting the right medication and then the right dosing and everything else. And then finally they got the right medicine and we're like, okay, we're good. We're good. And then he started getting breakthrough episodes and it was weird because once they had started medicating him, he, his breakthrough episodes were only hitting about like 220, 230. And we looked at the screen like, oh, it's only 220. And I just remember thinking, oh, it's only, his heart rate's only 220. <laughs> and we just kind of chuckled in a, I, I don't even know, just a, traumatic way of like, oh, it's not that bad. It's only 220, you know, or it's only 210. It's, it's not that bad. Realizing that, yeah, it is still very bad, but um, compared to where we had been, it was so much easier to handle that 220 than it was the 300. Um, so they had to adjust his medication one more time. And then it was just the waiting waiting long enough to make sure that his body would accept that adjusted dose. And thankfully, after 10 very long days in the PICU, he was able to go home. So now he's almost four in December mm -hmm. that after the hospitalization, did he have more episodes in the past three years? Um. So he was on medication for a while and he would have a series of uh, checkup EKGs. He would wear heart monitors um, for anywhere from two to four days. And um, after a few months, uh, oh, and I should also mention about a week after he got out of the hospital, he got the flu again. <laughs> And we were just so nervous of like, oh my gosh, what, we slept in our clothing, ready to go at the drop of an in, like, if we had any fear. And thankfully, we knew what to look for this time, whereas the first time it was a lot worse. Um, so after about, I think it was three or four months of him being consistent, having good EKG readings and being on the medicine and halter monitor readings. We went for a routine um, checkup and the doctor looked at me and said, so how's he been acting? And I went, why? Come to find out his medication was becoming toxic for him and he had to be taken off the medication immediately. 
So therein was the question of, okay, now what do we do? Um, so they monitored him again, and he spent one month on a live halter monitor. So he had his own phone that was connected to his monitor. And if that phone rang, we had to drop whatever we were doing and go immediately to the hospital for him to be admitted for medication treatment. So I, I, I literally had the two phones on my nightstand side by side every single night I had to dial in, you know, I would have to um, change the battery. I'd have to reprogram the phone. I'd have to dial everything in. So, and as I mentioned, you know, when I was pregnant with him, it was nine months of just holding my breath. And same thing when he was on that 30 day heart monitor, it was an entire month of just constantly staring at that phone. Is it, you know, is it going to ring? Is it going to, what's going to happen? And, you know, sometimes being out of signal, I would panic that maybe we had missed something. Well, thank you very much for sharing that story. Yeah. Um, what people don't realize is the pregnancy and giving birth um, it's a huge risk to anyone. And it sounds easy, but some cases are super complicated. Yes. And I had two miscarriages. And then in my book, I mentioned about one of the miscarriages that almost took my life by losing more than 50% on blood mm -hmm. in the bathroom. And I went unconscious. My blood pressure was 60 oh, wow. and I was in the shock stage and then when mm -hmm. I got to the hospital they gushed out um all the leftovers miscarriage that didn't come out and then basically I was given a choice of blood transfusion or die <laughs> and then <laughs> I'm like okay um so I did 12 hours of blood transfusion and first miscarriage was really heartbreaking because it was a low heart rate and it stopped and I was crying and devastating like mm -hmm. it was it was like very awful feeling that some something dies inside of your body yes and but for the second one I was I had to worry about my life and then I realized that the, compared to the first one, I had no like, um, kind of like sense of grief or loss because I was terrified that about like I I completely passed out, so yeah. I was terrified about my recovery. But then my daughter during the pregnancy was very hard with two shingles and then pinched nerve. Um, and then when I got to the hospital for C-section because I had a placenta previa. Mm -hmm. And um, the intern or resident didn't do a good job for epidural. So I end up, they end up trying 45 minutes. And then um, I end up doing the general anesthesia. And then three days later, I end up learning that the internal residents residents and I think um 
she didn't do a good job and poked a hole on my spinal cord. So the spinal fluid leaked. And Ooh. then I had a spinal headache. And then they have to get my blood out from my arm and then inject it back to my spinal cord. It's very painful to patch the hole. Um, and then after ex I had a exclusive pain after I got discharged from the hospital, I had to go back to the hospital again and they had to do all this blood clots test and everything. And it was just horrible. Like the pain, I, I, I cannot like even express. So I learned that it is a, a risk. And then a lot of people do not talk about obviously miscarriage and the feeling. So I'm very happy to know that you are here to open up this conversation to many of women who might have been through the death of child and um, miscarriages and difficulty of the child's illness and mm -hmm. how do you deal with that? And then publishing a book and then trying to share your story. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's not easy. It is really complicated. The body uh, and the phenomena of hospitals. And then I am definitely so grateful for blood donors and then the hospitals and technologies that saved my life. Yeah. My daughter's life too. But then um, it, it's very definitely traumatic experience. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, that's, um, unfortunately, my loss was not through miscarriage. Um, we had to make the choice, um, which is a, a very underrepresented issue within the loss community. And in, in just general knowledge, you know, of in, in general. Um, and, you know, as, as you mentioned, you know, miscarriage, termination for medical reasons, stillbirth, all of those come with huge, huge risks. Um, I, I believe that so many people still think that a pregnancy and birth is just this easy process, you know, you do this, you get pregnant, you house the baby, you feel a little yucky for a few months here and there. You go in and they give you medicine magically, poof, you have a baby and you go home happily ever after. No. <laughs> it is so not like that. Um, you know, and when I, um, when I had my son, because I was older when I had him, um, I was considered high risk. And because I had also just had um, a pregnancy loss due to genetic disorder of trisomy 18. And so, I mean, I was going into it with like all my mental guns blazing, so to speak. Um, so they, they induced my labor because of, again, my age. And because I have had um, reconstructive back surgery, I couldn't have an epidural. So all of the 80 hours of my induction was without an epidural. 
Um, so they did rounds of Sorvadil, they did rounds of Pitocin, they tried a balloon, they broke my water. Um, they tried everything to prevent me from going under general anesthesia. And I couldn't dilate. So finally it was like, all right, we're going to break your water. We're going to give you 24 hours. And if nothing, you know, if nothing happens in this period of time, you're going to have a C-section in the morning. Okay. Well, the problem was when I had surgery as a teenager, because I have a form of spina bifida. So I'd had four, I'd had major reconstructive surgeries as a, a young teenager, like 12 and 13 years old. I did not have good experiences with the anesthesia. And I was terrified that when I had my son, I, I did everything to avoid the anesthesia. I was like, I don't want to go under. I don't want to feel that horrible, horrible experience. I don't, I just, I was like, I don't care. Just I, no anesthesia. And it just came to the point where I had no choice. I had to have the C-section in order to have my son. And um, because, as I mentioned, I couldn't have the epidural, I had to actually, I walked down to the OR. And they set up a, a chair outside for my husband. He wasn't allowed to come in with me because it was an actual OR procedure. And I just walked in, climbed up on the table. And I was like, oh, God, this could be the best day of my life or the worst day of my life. And I don't know which one it's going to be. And the, the fear of knowing that I had no control, I had to, I just had to let them do what they were going to do because it was the only way to have my son. Um, it was very, very scary. Um, thankfully, I had a positive experience with the anesthesia. Um, they put the mask over my face. They told me to breathe and I did. And then the next thing I know, they're calling my name to wake me up. And I'm like, what just happened? <laughs> I was like, oh, wait, that's what anesthesia is supposed to feel like. <laughs> you know, that, that instantaneous um, consciousness. Um, so his first cries, I didn't hear them. I didn't get to count 10 fingers and 10 toes. I didn't get to see him all covered in the mushy stuff. He was all cleaned and wrapped up and perfectly beautiful when they handed him to me. But I did I did miss those, you know, stereotypical first moments with my son. But it's okay. <laughs> well, Grace, thank you so much for sharing your story. I just want to highlight a little bit of first bit of trauma uh, adversity that you mentioned about uh, dyslexia, learning disorder, mm -hmm. and then um, some traumatic abusive um, experiences that you had. So mm -hmm. I've had guests with learning disorder on this podcast and dyslexia as well. What, do you, what was the hardest thing that you went through with the learning disorder and dyslexia? And then I believe that you grew up in New York. Actually, I grew up in Massachusetts. Oh. Yeah, I moved out to New York about 20 years ago. Okay. And how was it like um, educational support? I it was non-existent. Mm. I had horrific experiences as a child in 
um, in my school. <clears throat> they told me I was lazy, I was stupid, I wasn't going to become anything. Uh, the teachers were some of my biggest bullies. Um, they would get literally right up in my face and say they weren't paid to babysit me, that I was just, yeah, that I was too stupid and I was too lazy. And, you know, if I wanted to fail, I'm fine. That wasn't their problem. That was mine. When did you get diagnosis um, with the dyslexia and learning disorder? What age? I was in fourth grade. So prior to your proper diagnosis that you said your teachers were kind of bullying but how about after your diagnosis after fourth grade was that same well i'm sorry what after the proper diagnosis um you said fourth grade mm -hmm. did it change did yeah. the teacher's behavior change at all no. some did some didn't um there were some teachers that were understanding and, you know, really believed the diagnosis and were there to help and support me. And then I still had others that, you know, they just still constantly ridiculed me. Um, there were other students in the class that had similar learning disabilities. Um, I remember a science teacher, he would line us up in a specific order in the rows of the classroom and he would bounce from one of us to the other knowing full well we couldn't process as quickly as he was asking the questions so he'd be like come on let's go let's go let's go let's go and it's like what are you stupid everybody knows this answer oh right here and, and what's the answer to this and he would then ask one of the other students that had a learning disability, knowing we couldn't answer it because we couldn't keep up. And we were all right in the front row so that everybody behind us got to see the whole show. Wow. Yeah. Um, it wasn't until I was in high school that I actually had teachers truly believe in me. I, I left the public school system and I went to a private high school. And I have said this before and I'll say it again, writing, writing saved my life because I had, I had done some writing and I had a, an English language arts teacher who looked at some of my work and said, wow. And she really, I don't think she really knows, but she did save my life. And I had written a poem about the book um, Night by Elie Wiesel. He was a Holocaust survivor. And I wrote to him and he wrote back to me. <laughs> and that's really how writing got me in a better direction. I started believing in myself. I started having confidence and realizing, hey, it doesn't matter that I have dyslexia or I'm learning disabled. I'm, you know, I've made adults cry because my words are organized so beautifully. So it was really amazing. It was an amazing gift. Explain to me how dyslexia works um, and then how your writing um, skill 
um, is not affecting, affected by the dyslexia? So dyslexia is when you see and process things differently on the page. So um, you like on your title, it says a gift from adversity. Someone with dyslexia could look at that and see a fig from adversity because they're shifting the letters and reading that. Um, it also, the B, D, G, P, Q letters are often reversed because they're visually the same exact letter just swapped in different directions. Um, so those are very hard. So like a dog is a bog, a boy is a doy. So uh, we have a tendency to, to swap those letters um, around. And that's also partly why I went into teaching so that I could help kids not have the experiences I did. Um, but as far as my writing, because I'm a bit of a scatterbrain, I've learned to just work with that. So I don't follow the typical you know, staging process of writing. Okay, here's what I want to cover in this, and here's what I want to do here. I don't do that. I just write, and wherever I go, I go. My my outlining, my my organization is just a list of bullet points that I might kind of say, okay, I want to put those together in this section. But really, that's about it. I make a list of things I want to discuss, and I just, I go, and I edit the list as I continue writing. Um, when I wrote my book, that's how I started. I kind of started in the middle, and then I worked my way outwards <laughs> in both directions. So you mentioned about abuse relationship as well. Mm -hmm. Can you explain a little bit in depth about what happened? Oh, my ex-husband, he was extremely narcissistic. He was very manipulative and he would gaslight me. Um, and it was just so subtle. It was just that, that little pick, a little bit here, a little bit here. Um, you know, building me up when we first met, thinking that I was the greatest thing in the world. And then you know, very, very slowly, it was like, oh, maybe you could wear a darker color shirt next time. And it was like, wait, what, what's wrong with the shirt? Well, nothing's wrong with it. You look nice, but I just think a darker color shirt would be better. So it was always this confusing, underhanded type of compliment, but it was, it was gaslighting and manipulation. And it, left me in a constant state of uncertainty, questioning whether or not I was doing the right thing. Was I pleasing him? Um, and just everything, my life, I became a servant in my own house. I was doing literally everything. And um, there's a lot more to the, to the story of him and the relationship, but um, it was a very lengthy process where, like I said, it wasn't just in one day. It was just little things here and there. And um, he would often say things like, well, a good wifey should know that. Or a good girlfriend would know that. Would know what? 
See, that just proves my point that you don't know. Don't know what? Never mind. We're not talking about it. I would have no clue what he was referencing, but it was a way of keeping me on edge and uncertain. And he would literally say, I like X, Y, and Z. Uh, whether it be food or um, making a drink a certain way, any of those things. And I would do it. And then he'd say, what's the matter with you? You know I don't like it this way. But you, you just told me that that's the way you like it. No, I didn't. Yeah, you did. Well, obviously, you're imagining things because I know I do not like it this way. Well, do you want me to fix it? No. Fine, I'll deal with it for now. But just know that I like it this way. Okay. So then I would adjust to his preferences for the next time, and he would do it again. And say, I don't like it that way. But you told me that last time when I messed it up. And he's like, well, you're the one that messed it up, not me. And it's like, it was... Just constant confusion, constant uncertainty and, and confusion. Um. Well, I am so sorry to hear all these adversities. And then um, I really appreciate you sharing them. Um, just like the title of my book, uh, I'm a survivor of the child sex abuse and domestic violence, bullying and homelessness. And then... Um, after doing this podcast and being a journalist and I'm gaining a lot more perspective on how, especially women in um, propagandas and marketings and then the values and, you know, self-compassion, all these issues that I've been writing and I've been advocating for myself and others, mm -hmm. other women too, I'm more learning that some of these propagandas and um, biases in the value that the society brainwashes you, especially my country, Japan, mm -hmm. uh, yourself, uh, you're worthless if you are not married, if you're, wor you're worthless if you don't have a child, uh, you're worthless if you don't have a partner. Mm -hmm. They don't like celebrate your career per se. So whatever the situation that you mentioned that if there was more of self-advocacy and boundary education happened i would say yeah that is like just bullshit and then we, we wouldn't i wouldn't take that but then i feel like the society forces us to be a servant for even an abusive situation because you're not worth like you not know, without a man or you're not you're worthless um if you or not married, mm -hmm. that kind of concept or pressure of age and all those things too that I'm learning. So my another question is, what are the tools that you use to overcome? So Grace, um, let's talk about a gift that worked for you to overcome these adversities. Um, so being prepared was one of the biggest things for me to overcome all the traumas that I had encountered in my life. Um, like I have a backpack and it's my 
my emergency backpack and it has you know a first aid kit there's my medication in it there's a sewing kit uh anything you could possibly need for an emergency i need to go and spend three days wherever it's already packed just put fresh clothing in it and it's good to go um anything you could possibly need is in there uh same i have an emergency bag in my car i it's got um Emergent, like emergency rations of food, water purification tabs, um, waterproof matches, all, all of the things. Um, what are the other ones? Um, astronaut blankets that can be used as tents so that just in case I'm ever in an emergency situation, I am fully prepared. So having, feeling prepared is a great way that I overcame a lot of those adversities and those those traumas. Because if I'm prepared, even if you surprise me with something, I've got a backpack of tools, literally, that I can deal with whatever situation I'm going through. Um, making lists and taking pictures of things, like when my son was in the hospital, I would take a picture of him every 12 hours so that I could see his progression. You know, was he looking better? Was he looking worse? Um, it was great for myself as well as my husband because he would say, I don't think he looks good. And I could go in the phone and say, okay, this was picture one, two, three, and four, you know, so you can see X, Y, and Z. And he's like, okay, good. So taking pictures of things to kind of chronicle the progress was very good. And I also used the notepad section of my phone to write lists of questions, but I would also write the answers under those questions. I wouldn't delete them. So that if I forgot, I could go back and reference them. And oftentimes my husband would say, well, wait, what did the doctor say about our son's um, you know, tracheal movements? And it's like, hang on. It'll show significantly for this period of time, and then it'll decrease, and in the future, da da da. Yeah, so I I would have it there, to to help me, help me remember. I could reference it when I needed it, and I could also reference it for my husband, um, if he needed that reassurance. How about your learning disability and dyslexia part of it? Definitely, the list making um, is very very important. I've worked on creating what I call a four-part list. So it's basically just a regular piece of paper in four sections. And um, it's what I have to do now, what I can do later today, tomorrow, or by the end of the week. And I always write it in pencil. That way there I can move things around. So like when my brain gets overloaded with things of like, okay, what do I have to do? I have 8,000 things to do. Okay. You know, people say make a list. Okay. But it's not just making a list. I need to organize that list. What are the things that need to be attended right now? What are the things I can do later on? You know, and then what are the things that are in the rest of that pecking order? And being able to move them 
Because like I might put something in the right now section and it's like, oh, no, 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 that, that I got time for that. So I can move it and the physical movement of it really helps my brain to process and see, okay, that has gone over to here. It is not pressing. So it's kind of like I'm giving my brain permission to say, okay, we don't need to stress about that right now. Well, thank you so much for um, bringing these conversations, sensations to forefront. I just want to mention, do you know Eric Adams, uh, the New York City mayor, had implemented the dyslexia screening mainly like from preschool and then prisoners? I was not aware of that. So he himself had suffered with dyslexia uh, growing up as a black man, similar story that you shared was called stupid and illiterate and all that stuff. So he had made sure, he wanted to make sure those screening are implemented so that teachers are aware to prepare. And then, you know, IEP in our school district, we have about 250 IEP plans um, mm. that, you know, cater to the individual disabilities and learning disability and needs that are really crucial to not only the public education system, obviously private schools run differently, but you know, I feel my daughter is seven years old in high school and then the teachers and then the uh, director of student services that I've talked to, mm -hmm. um, that I feel that our kids' generation's experience is a little less harsh than before because of the understanding of what dyslexia is, what's the learning disability, and how can we combat that? And then my heart breaks out for you because the teachers should be fired. And then to be honest with you, in this age, if the teacher had said that, I think they'll be fired, to be honest. So Grace, thank you so much for coming in to uh, give from adversity. So my last question is, what's the gift that came from your adversity? Um, so it's a two-part gift of strength and resilience. Um, the resilience that I can handle whatever is thrown at me. And even though it may seem scary and impossible to achieve or overcome, it's really not. It's just that one step at a time, that one minute at a time, what can I do right now? in this situation to deal with this particular part and then grow from that. And then, you know, the other part of that is just the strength. And I really believe they work hand in hand because that strength gives you the resilience and the resilience gives you the strength because afterwards you look at it and you say, wow, I did that. And it gives you confidence there as well, but definitely strength and resilience. Well, thank you so much, Grace, for coming in to a gift from diversity tonight. Thank you. It has been wonderful. Great. Well, thank you to our audience for tuning in, and we'll see you next time.